Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 3. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter the possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your hearts, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the New Testament reading for today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 24 to 35. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, The word of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven, And gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Thanks be to God. We human beings can put a lot of effort into pursuing spiritual or religious things for self-seeking, worldly reasons. So I find it useful to distinguish between what's called uh, intrinsic and what's called extrinsic spirituality. Uh, Robert Winston uh, explains this rather well. He says, extrinsic religiosity is defined as religious self-centeredness. Such a person goes to church or synagogue as a means to an end for what they can get out of it 
Going to church or synagogue becomes a, a social convention. Gordon Allport identified a group of people who were intrinsically religious, seeing their religion as an end in itself. They tended to be more deeply committed. Religion became the organising principle of their lives, a central and personal experience. And in support of research, Allport found that, uh, for example, prejudice was more common in those individuals who scored highly for the extrinsic type of religion. And intrinsic religiosity seems to be associated with lower levels of anxiety and stress, freedom from guilt, better adjustment in society, and less incidence of depression. On the other hand, extrinsic religious feelings, where religion is used as a way to belong to and to prosper within the group, kind of socially speaking, seem to be associated with increased tendencies to guilt and worry and anxiety. Of course, paradoxically, while intrinsic spirituality is better for you and for society than extrinsic spirituality, by the very nature of the case, you can't go after intrinsic spirituality for its extrinsic worldly benefits. Now the crowd that had followed Jesus home across the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000 was, as the Apostle Paul might have put it, very religious. But their religion was focused on the extrinsic, the this-worldly benefits. They had recognised the finger of God in the feeding of the 5,000 men, plus women and children, so even more. But they had failed to see where God's finger was pointing. Because they were preoccupied with worldly concerns. And so the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the lake piled into some boats from Tiberias and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. There are 16 references to Capernaum, that's Kappa meaning village of Nahum, the village of Nahum in the Gospels. Among other first century finds, archaeologists have uncovered evidence of the fishing industry there, such as anchors and fish hooks, which uh, many of the disciples were employed in, of course, as well as uh, streets and houses that were certainly used by Jesus and the disciples on occasion. Ignoring the crowd's implied criticism, this sort of passive, aggressive question of when he got there, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter, as he often does. He says, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The New Testament uses at least three Greek words to describe miracles. Dunamis is an act of power, dynamic act of power. A terrace, a wonder. And John's favourite term that he uses in his gospel is semion, 
or a sign. Dunamis focuses attention on the cause of a miracle in the power of God. Terrace refers to its effect, but Semyon refers to its purpose, its meaning. And this crowd of people had experienced a miracle, and they recognized that the cause of the miracle lay in the power of God. And they appreciated that the effect of that miracle was free food in their bellies. They just didn't recognize the significance of the miracle. They didn't appreciate its meaning. Well, the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't really obscure when we call to mind the Old Testament story of the exodus from slavery in Egypt. Consider Exodus 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to send you food from heaven, like rain. Every day the people should go out and gather only what they need for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. So in the Exodus, God miraculously provided manna, or bread, And in the feeding of the 5,000, God once again miraculously provided literal bread. This suggests that Jesus is, if you like, a new Moses. Not only a prophet, but the Messiah of prophecy who will lead his people, signified by the 12 baskets of leftovers, John 6, 13, the 12 tribes of Israel. He will lead them in a new exodus. Well, anyone in the crowd who'd got this much probably hoped that the exodus in question would be from out under the sandal of Roman occupation. Now, interesting, archaeologists have found evidence of Roman military presence in Capernaum in the form of a long bathhouse of a positively non-Jewish design that almost certainly belonged to the garrison commanded by Jesus' centurion, who's mentioned in Matthew 8, 5, 13, and Luke 7, 1 to 10. And as the incident of Jesus healing the centurion's servant suggests, Jesus had no antagonism towards the Roman occupiers. His sights were set on helping people to enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 3 to 5, for example. And on that occasion, having seen the centurion's faith, Jesus told the crowd with him on that occasion this. He said, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's from Matthew eight ten to 12. So the remnant of the 5,000 from the miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes, some of whom may well have heard Jesus praise their local centurion in Capernaum, had set their spiritual sights far too low. They desired earthly goods, food or 
political liberation. And they desired them to the exclusion of heavenly goods. It's not that pursuing earthly goods is a bad thing as such, but that it becomes a bad thing if it supplants more important things. As C.S. Lewis warned, the man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all the power of enjoying that earlier and only pleasurable level of intoxication. Every preference for a small good to great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. In focusing attention on the significance of his feeding of the five thousand, Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now by applying to himself this Son of Man title, which comes from the prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Jesus interprets what it means to be Messiah using divine imagery. And in drawing an analogy between himself and the bread of the the recently recapitulated Exodus miracle, Jesus said we need him, we need him more than we need our staple food. As Jesus says in Matthew 4.4, it is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of course, this is written in Deuteronomy 8.3, which recalls how God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus speaks of himself as the very word of God coming out of God's mouth. And he points to the central role he believes he should play in our spirituality, a role that the scriptures reserve for God himself. So Jesus not only says that the Son of Man provides spiritual food that endures to eternal life, and that he is that Son of Man... He says that he is that food. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. There is here a foreshadowing of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurates by his death after the Last Supper. The famous verse from 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in this way, Jesus turned an old covenant miracle of provision for earthly needs into a miraculous new covenant sign of provision for our fundamental 
spiritual need. Notice how the Exodus account portrayed God's provision of manna as a spiritual test. Each day the people should go out and gather only what they need for that day. In this way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. That is, would Israel so focus upon their earthly needs and desires that they would end up ignoring the very God who satisfied those desires, forgetting to trust in him day by day above all things, even at the risk of an empty stomach tomorrow? Would Israel adopt an intrinsic spiritual relationship with God who provided for them or an extrinsic relationship with God's provision for them? Real intrinsic spirituality means turning from our selfishness, taking up the cross daily and living for Christ. But... As it says in Matthew 6.33, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these secondary things find their proper place and will be given to you as well. Thanks be to God.